Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains adult themes and listener discretion is advised. I'm Eric Rivenis. Today we're traveling back to the 1860s and the American Civil War. Now this, of course, was a war started by men and fought by men, and the vast majority of books written about the Civil War focus on the politics and the battles that defined it. There were, however, a few women who helped shape the conflict in their own unique way. They were spies and effective ones, too. And this is our subject on this week's episode of Most Notorious. I'm excited to be joined by Karen Abbott, the New York Times best-selling author of American Rose, Sin in the Second City, and the book we're going to be talking about today, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, Four Women Undercover in the Civil War. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Eric. So most books about the Civil War focus on the men that started it and fought in it, And when women appear, they're usually the recipients of heartfelt letters from lonely soldiers, or they are patriotically sewing away on flags and uniforms for whichever side they support. Your book focuses on the stories of four very strong women who take a very active and incredibly courageous role in the war effort. Uh, yeah, I, um, you know, I, I sort of came upon my interest in the Civil War in an indirect way. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia and never really thought much about the Civil War um, until I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where, of course, they're still fighting the Civil War uh, in many sure. ways. And uh, it was quite a culture shock. You know, uh, I, I had to get used to, you know, seeing the occasional Confederate flag on somebody's lawn, um, hearing jokes about the, quote, War of Northern Aggression, as they call it down there. And just realizing that the Civil War seeped into daily life and conversation in a way uh, it never does up north. 
and this point was really driven home for me one day when I was sitting in traffic on Route 400, uh, which is the busiest thoroughfare in Atlanta. Right. right. Um, and I was stuck behind a pickup truck with a bumper sticker that said, don't blame me. I voted for Jefferson Davis, you know, who, of course, was the president of the Confederacy. And I was, you know, stuck behind this pickup truck for two hours and therefore had quite a bit of time to really start thinking about the Civil War. And my mind goes to, with any subject in history, um, you know, what were the women doing? And not just any woman. What were the, the quote unquote bad women doing? What were the defiant women doing? And I just figured, you know, there had to be spies. And sure enough, I, I started, you know, digging around a little bit and, and uh, came up with some really intriguing women um, and uh, and was amazed uh, the deeper I got into my research, uh, how dedicated they were to their cause and how uh, willing they were to do pretty much anything in order to uh, hopefully see their side win. Usually the books we talk about here have a pretty linear narrative. Someone commits a crime, an investigation ensues, with some resolution at the end. In Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, you basically present us with four separate biographies of two northern and two southern women, with the Civil War as this giant sweeping backdrop. So we don't have a traditional beginning, middle, and end here, as we typically do with historical true crime books. But but these individual stories are really fascinating. And let's start with Belle Boyd, if you don't mind. I think Belle Boyd would demand to go first, so. <laughs> right. My podcast is, is called Most Notorious, and Belle Boyd really fits the bill here. She was quite notorious and in oh so many ways. (laughs) Yes, she was. Um, She, Belle was immediately a fascinating character for me. You know, she was, uh, I like to say that, you know, if if Sarah Palin and Miley Cyrus had a 19th century baby, it would have been Belle Boyd. (laughs) She had no filter. She was all id. And she was incredibly explicit in both with her, both her opinions and her sexuality, which was incredibly rare for a girl of this time period. And especially a teenager, you know, I have to keep reminding myself that this girl was 17 years old when all of this was going on. And just the things I think she threw herself into uh, without abandon, because she really believed she was invincible. And in a way, I think she was. Can you tell us a little bit about her background and the incident in her home that kind of pushes her into espionage? Yeah, I wanted to start the book off with a bang. Uh, literally, I think whenever you can do that, it's a good it's a good way to go. But it's the it's a Fourth of July, eighteen sixty one. Uh, she's living in Martinsburg, Virginia. Today it's Martinsburg, West Virginia, but of course it was just Virginia at the time. And uh, Union forces had just won a small skirmish in the Shenandoah Valley, and they were marching up the valley to have a victory parade in Bell's hometown. Um, and Belle is waiting for them to come. She knows that they're they're heading up her way. Um, and uh, they arrive and they begin uh, pillaging stores, uh, ransacking homes, terrorizing the neighbors, and, and just generally uh, uh, creating um, a ruckus in, in, in Belle's neighborhood. Um, and she's waiting for them to approach her home, and sure enough, they do. And one of them threatens to raise a Union flag over Belle's home. And Belle Boyd's mother stepped forward and says, um, gentlemen, everyone in this household shall die if that flag goes up over this house. Um, one of the soldiers lunged at her mother or made a sort of uh, romantic advance. Belle describes it a couple different ways. And, uh, and Belle uh, decides that the only way she could settle this situation is to shoot this man dead. And she claims to fa- self-defense and she gets away with it. 
And she's very emboldened by the fact that she gets away with it. And she decides that uh, the Confederate Army just can't do without her. I mean, they need her in order to win the war. And she uh, contacts relatives. She had relatives and many family friends in the Confederate Army. And she offers her services. And uh, she gets a sort of low-level entry position as a courier, um, a deliverer of messages. And she vows to sort of work her way up and, and become a more important person to the the Confederate Secret Service. Uh, And she eventually, you know, dips her toe into that a bit uh, with some really interesting um, repercussions. And she's quite the seductress, too. She becomes a master at using her feminine wiles to extract information from easily used Union officers. Yeah, she seduced uh, Union and Confederate men alike, You know, I think part of the reason of her success was that she was so brazen about her loyalty to the South and to the Confederacy. And she would walk into Union camps wearing um, a full Confederate, you know, a riding habit with the Confederate um, emblems on it, uh, you know, a a palmetto pin on her uh, at her throat, which was the um, official symbol for South Carolina. And she would just start flirting with the Union men and say things like, well, how dangerous can I possibly be? I'm here in your camp wearing a Confederate uniform telling you how I support the South. If I were really a dangerous spy, wouldn't I try to be trickier and more subtle about it? Um, And I think that they, you know, that coupled with the fact that she was a woman, and of course women, you know, weren't capable of devious behavior. uh, They didn't think at that time anyway. That would soon change. Um, And that she was 17 years old, you know, it just uh, didn't add up to a threat in their minds. And she took full advantage of that and had many paramours. Um, there was a couple great stories about that. She, uh, according to a Northern journalist, she was quote unquote closeted for four hours with Union General James Shields. And she uh, celebrated this conquest by wrapping a rebel flag around his head. Um, and my favorite, and this is why I love nonfiction, you know, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> One of her paramours was a man by the name of Major Dick Long. Um, and I always feel like a 12 year old boy saying that, but I found that in a newspaper clip and I was like, I just can't resist. I need to put that in the book. So, uh, that's just, uh, her early paramours, you know, later on she moved to, on to uh, Stonewall Jackson, or at least she attempted to. And that is a really interesting relationship. She really seems enamored with Stonewall Jackson and he becomes quite grateful to her for the information she gives him just prior to his attack on Front Royal. Yeah, she was obsessed with Stonewall Jackson at a young age. You know, he was sort of, um, he was from Virginia, and once the Civil War started, and he was making a name for himself as a as a uh, general, and her father was serving under Stonewall. Um, so she was really obsessed with him. And, you know, she even told reporters that she wanted to, quote, occupy his tent and share his dangers, which if I were Stonewall Jackson, I think would have scared me more than anything the Yankees uh, might have done. But she was obsessed with him and really determined to get his notice and get his respect. And as you said, that did culminate. It was the spring of 1862 during uh, Jackson's famous Valley campaign. Uh, I would say shortly before the the Battle of Front Royal in in May of 1862, um, Bell uh, had an opportunity to spy on a Union War Council. She found out where they were meeting. Um, She positioned herself in a room directly above the meeting. Um, There was a hole on the floor, and she sort of fitted her ear against the hole and and eavesdropped on what the uh, Union generals were talking about. 
and she learned their plan to try to trap trap Jackson uh, in this in uh, Front Royal um, in this coming battle. And she decided to actually literally run out into the battlefield and deliver this information to Stonewall Jackson. Uh, now there's some dispute over whether or not she was the first person to deliver this information. Um, many historians think that he was aware of their plan, um, but the, the fact that she ran out there and, and told him right in the moment did confirm it for him. So he was able to sort of anticipate what was, what was going to happen and, and act accordingly. Um, and, and afterward, he, you know, he was grateful to her. She says that he wrote her a note, but later it is uh, confirmed that a lot of her papers were destroyed in a fire. So unfortunately, that does not exist. Um, I would have loved to have seen that, though. And her life after the war is really fascinating as well. Despite her deep hatred for the Union, she ends up marrying a Union naval officer. She does. And, and uh, part of Bell's hubris that she believed, oh, I'll just turn him around. You know, I'm going to make him a Confederate yet. Uh, pretty soon he'll just be bowing to my whims. And she was definitely the dominant one in that relationship and sort of steered the course. Uh, and my favorite anecdote about that time in her life aside from the whole ridiculous courtship with this Union uh, naval officer, uh, was that she wrote a note back home to Confederate President Jefferson Davis saying, by now you've probably heard about my marriage to a Union captain. Um, I want to assure you that I'm still loyal to the Confederacy um, and that I'm still uh, devoting myself to your cause and please have no worries about my loyalty. Meanwhile, Jefferson Davis had just lost a son um, his young son died. He had fallen off the uh, the roof of, of the uh, Confederate, uh, you know, the White House there, fell off the roof. It was rumored that his uh, another son had pushed this son to his death accidentally. And it was a, a very bad time for the Confederate Army. You know, they were um, sort of struggling in terms of supplies and, and losses and uh, manpower. You know, at this point, they didn't even have shoes uh, to fight battles in. And um it, it was, things were just uh, sort of going downhill quickly for the Confederates. And I just love that Bell Boyd believed that, you know, that President Davis was really going to care about her marriage to some Union captain. <laughs> and I'm sure that she took priority over the well-being of his army and the Confederacy. Another one of the women that you spotlight is Sarah Emma Edmonds. Can you tell us what inspired her to enlist in the 2nd Michigan Infantry? as a man, and how she was able to get away with it. Yeah, I found her a fascinating character and a very sympathetic character. I, I, I just was constantly interested in what she was going to do next. She's quite an interesting backstory. She was born and raised in Canada and grew up in a household um, with all daughters um, and one son. She had a brother uh, who was epileptic, and her father was desperate for somebody to help him on the family farm. And uh, the boy uh, being having epilepsy was not in a physical condition to be able to do that. Of course, you know, daughters were useless, <laughs> pretty much. And uh, he just began marrying his daughters off one by one. And Emma noticed, you know, how her, her sister's lives changed after they, you know, were forced into these arranged marriages. All the color and fun leached out of their lives. You know, they just uh, lived for one day and the next, um, you know, more miserable as time passed. And she was determined to escape that own fate for herself. Uh, she craved excitement. She craved drama. Um, and she craved freedom. Her father also had a, a paramour picked out for her, a suitor, um, that she was arranged to be married to. And I think that Emma decided that 
the only way she was going to escape being in the clutches of a man was to become a man herself. Uh, so one day she, when she was about 17 years old, uh, she cut her hair, she bound her breasts, she traded in her women's dress for a man's suit, and she began calling herself Frank Thompson. And she migrated to the United States and uh, worked as an itinerant Bible salesman and began hearing about uh, the abolitionist John Brown and the drumbeat of events leading up to the Civil War and decided she wanted a piece of that action. Um, she was an abolitionist. She considered herself a devout Christian. She believed slavery was wrong. But um, equally, you know, I think she really was drawn to the excitement that a war would present. So in Detroit, Michigan, in the spring of 1861, uh, she enlists and you know, I had, it was great fun to try to figure out, research how exactly she passed the physical examination to get it to the army. Now, the rule was that the doctors were supposed to conduct thorough medical examinations. Um, you know, they were, uh, you know, had quotas to fill. They needed to get bodies out there quickly. So they really only cared if an applicant had um, teeth to uh, tear off powder cartridges um, if they had the feet to march and if they had the hands to shoot a gun. And, and that was pretty much it. Uh, it didn't matter if you had any other affliction. They, they just needed you to be able to do these basic functions and you were in. Um, and Emma uh, was a very good shot with a gun. She had grown up hunting and uh, passed the physical examination handily. So then, of course, you know, you wonder, well, how did she fool her comrades? You know, she's sleeping in tight quarters with these men. She's marching with them, um, drilling with them for hours and hours every day. You know, how did she pass muster with them? And I, I you know, did some research in this, and I came to the conclusion uh, that she mostly fooled these men um, because nobody had any idea what a woman would look like wearing pants. You know, people were so used to seeing women's bodies pushed and pulled in these exaggerated shapes with corsets and crinoline. Um, that the very idea of a woman wearing pants, let alone an entire army uniform, was so unfathomable that even if she were standing in front of you uh, in pants, you, you just couldn't see it. So I think she used that to her great advantage. Um, she also, unlike other women who enlisted, and there were about 400, it's estimated, uh, women for both North and South who um, enlisted as men and fought for their respective armies. She had been living as a man for two years. I think she had honed her voice her mannerisms, um, her lack of facial hair, she could pass off by saying she was young. You know, she a lot of a lot of boys didn't have facial hair yet. And um, she was just as brave as any other any man. And I think she quickly earned the respect of her comrades and uh, was able to just uh, fight the war alongside them without anyone uh, noticing anything. Of course, until she decides that she's going to allow herself to fall in love with a fellow Union soldier. Uh, another uh, member of the second Michigan, which became one of my favorite storylines in the book. Yes, I enjoyed that too. So she serves under George McClellan, including in the first and second battle of Bull Run slash Manassas as a male field nurse. But her life takes a turn when she, she decides to apply as a union spy. Yeah, I, I was really fascinated by um, her tales of espionage um, and of course had to try to decipher what, what was true and what she was exaggerating about. And there were a couple instances in the narrative where you could confirm that she was telling a lie. You know, there's one great scene and I, I write that in the narrative that this is a figment of her imagination, um, where she's on the field at Antietam and notices a soldier dying and she goes over to the soldier and the soldier is also a woman and confesses that she's a woman and once Emma recognizes that Emma is also a woman and wants Emma to take care of her. 
Well, Emma and her regiment, they weren't on the field at Antietam. So uh, right there, that was that was proven false. But, you know, I often I really think that, you know, what people lie about, what characters in history choose to lie about and what they omit is just as important and relevant and interesting as what they actually did. So I, I wanted to explore those areas, too. But but she definitely had some daring feats of espionage, you know, and, and was really interesting to research the, the disguises that spies would use, you know, things that sound so sort of um, primitive today, um, but but were popular disguises uh, for, for both um, North and South back then. The possibility that she, she might be discovered at any time must really have been frightening for her. And she even deserts from the army when she gets malaria so she doesn't have to face a military hospital. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, if you think about it, she was facing danger on two fronts. You know, as you said, she, she the fear of discovery, she could be arrested, she could be charged with prostitution, and she would most certainly be kicked out of the army, you know, if they had found out she was a woman. So there was that fear, and of course, the fear under, uh, of, of being killed by the enemy. Um, so it's sort of remarkable to think about her bravery, you know, and she's going through these disguises. You know, at one point she disguises herself as a male slave, which was all fine. You know, um, she darkens her skin with silver nitrate and has a wig and, and sort of changes out of her uniform into, you know, cotton trousers. And th- this is all well and good until um, it begins raining or it's incredibly sunny and, and her skin, you know, starts running and, and the color draining off. And then she's in some some pretty serious trouble. She was facing danger on a constant basis. And I was always impressed by the level of strength she was able to display and how she was able to really talk her way out of any situation. And once she's recovered in the hospital, she finds out pretty quickly that her alias is wanted for desertion. So she just goes back to being a woman. I imagine how terrifying it would be to see that you are listed as a deserter, which you could be hanged for. I mean, that was a, a, a crime punishable by death. And and so she I, she does decide. And I think at that point, she was really ready to go back to being Emma Edmonds. Um, she, she knew it was time for her to do that. She wanted to do that in the back of her mind. And it was it was the time. I, you know, I think the way that she ended her life finding out that, you know, other people were getting pensions, they were getting compensated for the time that they spent in the army. And, and she, you know, had permanent physical disabilities. And she um, decides that that she's going to fight for that same compensation, um, that she has every much right to it as as the male soldiers do. And the fact that she was comfortable at that point coming out to them as a woman and coming out to them as uh, you know, I'm I'm Frank Thompson, your old comrade, but I'm really Emma Edmonds. And um, that they all rallied around her, I thought was was really wonderful and, and um, was retroactively very happy for her. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist? And we have returned. Let's chat about Rose O'Neill Greenhough. She, like Belle Boyd, becomes another Confederate spy, and she's incredibly smart, really passionate. Can you talk about her a bit? How does she become involved in, in spying for the Confederacy? You know, it's a good question. I had, you know, the hardest time relating to Rose out of the, actually, I should say five women. I always like to include Mary Bowser, um, who is, uh, was one of Elizabeth Van Lu's spies, but I'm sure we'll get into her. But Rose Greenhow was difficult for me because her politics were so ugly and so abhorrent. Um, and the things that she said about African-Americans were was so racist and offensive that I had to find a way to, you know, you know, even understanding that this woman is coming from obviously a different time and place, I had to find a way to make her human in my mind. And I just sort of started looking at her circumstances. Uh, and her whole life had fallen apart in the years leading up to the war. Um, she had lost five children in four years, if, if you can imagine that. She lost her husband in a freak accident. And she had lost her access to the White House. You know, Rose is somebody who had been friends with high-ranking Democratic politicians for years leading up to the war. Uh, she was even a very close confidant and advisor to former President James Buchanan. And she lost all of that when Lincoln and the Republicans came to power. And I think this was somebody who was operating from a place of incredible depression and incredible desperation and, you know, was digging from that very dark place and re really thought she had nothing left to lose. And she was willing to do whatever it took to 
regain a vestige of her whole life. And she was even willing to, you know, put her young daughter, you know, she starts off the war uh, with her eight-year-old daughter, Little Rose, at her side, and even employed her in her espionage missions. And and I think that she really, truly believed, um, given all that she had been through and how desperate she was, that it would be better to sacrifice her daughter's life and her own life than it would be for them to live under Yankee rule because it was associated with everything that she loathed. Um, and, and so that's how I just began to under try to understand where she was coming from. And she plays a pretty important role in the first Battle of Bull Run as well. Can you talk about how she helped the South in that victory? Um, in the spring of 1861, um, she was approached by a Confederate captain named Thomas Jordan, and he knew of Rose. Everybody knew of Rose. She was sort of the, the queen bee of Washington, D.C. society for many years. And uh, he thought that she would be the perfect person to uh, organize and operate an espionage uh, ring in the, in the federal capital, in Washington, D.C. Um, so, you know, literally right under the nose of the enemy. Um, and Rose jumped at the chance. And uh, she began practicing the cipher that he gave her, memorizing the symbols, figuring out how to communicate with her her. Uh, she called them her scouts. Uh, they were technically spies. The scouts are military people who are actually um, enlisted with the military and spies are civilians. So that was the difference there. But she called them her scouts. So Rose, I should also say, was a notorious seductress. Um, she seduced Confederates and Union men alike. Um, and she uh, seduced very high-ranking Union politicians. One of her reported paramours was uh, Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, who was not only an abolitionist Republican, he was also the chairman of the uh, Lincoln's Committee on Military Affairs. Um, So you can imagine that they had some very uh, interesting and lucrative pillow talk. And in the weeks leading up to the first Battle of Bull Run, which was in August of 1861, Rose, um, having acquired some sensitive information, summoned one of her couriers to her home on Lafayette Square uh, in Washington, D.C., by the way, she always said that her home was, quote, uh, within rifle range of Lincoln's White House. Um, and it's just to give you an idea of uh, her feelings about Lincoln. And she summoned this 16-year-old courier named Betty Duvall to her home and uh, wrapped up a dispatch in a little scrap of black silk and then coiled this piece of black silk up in Betty's hair and hid it in a bun and gave her very specific instructions. Um, she told her to uh, just act like she was a simple farm girl on her way home from the market she could just pass over the bridge, wave to the Union sentries. They wouldn't think twice about it. They would just admire the pretty girl going on her way. She would arrive at General Beauregard's headquarters, you know, uncoil her hair and uh, hand over this message. And the messages confirmed um, the position and number of Yankee troops that were expected to be at Bull Run um, on that day, on a certain day. And uh, and so Betty Duvall did exactly this. And the information uh, did sort of confirm what Beauregard knew and suspected and allowed him to uh, be uh, adequately prepared for the upcoming battle. And, of course, the um, the Battle of Boron, the first Battle of Boron, was a disastrous defeat for the Union, a surprising and bloody defeat. Um, and, you know, really uh, shook up the notion that was popular in the North and even with Lincoln and his... his uh, advisors, that the war was only going to last 90 days. You know, this was going to be a quick war. Um, They were going to meet the Confederates at the Battle of Bull Run and Manassas. Um, They would march on to Richmond. They would capture Richmond, and the war would be over. Of course, the Confederates had other plans, and uh, Rose Greenhow was instrumental in making those happen. Eventually, she's imprisoned, yet she still manages 
to continue her role as a Confederate spy. Yes, she does. Um, Rose, as you, I think you said before, was always the smartest person in the room. One of my favorite scenes um, comes, at, you know, while she's imprisoned and she's dragged to a hearing where people want to accuse her of treasonous activity and present the evidence that she's a traitor. And Rose manages, you know, in a few deft sentences to completely turn her accusers on the on the defensive and and sort of almost make them apologize to her. It, it was really quite a brilliant display and one of my favorite scenes in the book. Um, where you really just get to see Rose's mind. She had such a quick and facile mind and just got to see it work brilliantly. Um, but her little daughter, uh, you know, little Rose, uh, was in her cell with her in prison. And she would actually lower her daughter down by her ankles into the cell below where there were Confederate soldiers. And she would, you know, get information from them and, and uh, pass it on and use the guards and do whatever she could to you know, assist the Confederacy from behind bars. <laughs> and that's quite a, a visual picture of little Rose being lowered down. Yeah, yeah, it was, it, it was, uh, you know, I think she realized little Rose was one of her best weapons. And of course, she raised little Rose to parrot all of her, her sayings about Yankees and, and to uh, inherit the vitriol uh, that, that Rose herself had for the Yankees. So she's released from prison without a trial and is enlisted by Jefferson Davis as a diplomat. Can you talk about her time overseas? Yeah, it was really quite remarkable. You know, I think that she was the first uh, woman sent over in a diplomat position without a, without a husband, you know, not accompanying a, a you know, a, a, a husband who was a politician or elected official, a woman sent on her own to act in a diplomatic fashion on behalf of her country. Um, and it was uh, sort of unprecedented and it just shows the faith that Jefferson Davis had, uh, not only in Rose's, um, you know, beauty. She was rumored to be very beautiful and um, everybody always remarked about her beauty um, and her charm and her intellect, um, but just her knowledge of politics and of, of people. You know, Rose was a great reader of people and she met with all of the top officials in England and France um, and, and really tried uh, to lobby them on, on behalf of the Confederacy to recognize the South as its own separate country, um, which would have been a, a really great diplomatic victory for the South uh, had, they, had they succeeded in doing that. And of the four main women that you focus on in your book, three of them end up living moderately happy lives after the war. But Rose does not. She passes away quite tragically. You know, it, it was terrible in the sense that she was too young to die. Um, even in those days, you know, I think Rose would have had some some life left in her. But she, I think, was determined to give her life for the cause if that's what it took. And, and um, you know, of course, the circumstances was she was heading back to the United States, um, back to the South, I should say. And um, her boat was uh, targeted by a Yankee ship, and uh, there was a you know a sort of shootout on the seas, and um, they they capsized, and and Rose ended up drowning. Um, she was weighed down by gold that she had uh, earned from selling her book, um, and she was planning to give that gold to Confederate relief services, um, but but you know it it was. Um, heavy and sort of weighed her down. And, and I, I really, truly believe that Rose was happier to die than to be taken back uh, as a prisoner of the Yankees. I, I think she figured she was going to die one way or another. She was either going to die in a Yankee jail or she could go, go out on her own terms 
And Rose was uh, definitely somebody who I think would pick going out on her own terms. She, she wanted to go out on her own terms in every respect of her life. So Elizabeth Van Loo is the fourth woman that you write about in your book. Uh, Van Loo is an abolitionist living in the middle of wartime Richmond, Virginia, in pretty difficult circumstances. She's in the shadow of the enemy and surrounded by people who mistrust and, and downright despise her. Can you explain how she managed to create a spy ring in, in the midst of this hostility? Yeah, Elizabeth Van Lu to me was, um, I, I, I think, in, in some ways, the most interesting character. You know, she was pretty much the exact opposite of Rose Greenhow. You know, Rose was this Confederate spy living in Washington, D.C. Elizabeth was a Union spy living in the Confederate capital of Richmond. Um, and whereas Rose was, you know, this great beauty, everybody always talked about Rose's looks. Elizabeth, um, according to one of her neighbors, was, quote, never as pretty as her portrait showed. Um, which I thought was a horrible quote, um, you know, but Elizabeth had a, also had a really interesting background. Um, she was born in Richmond, but was sent to Philadelphia for schooling. Um, and while she was there, she was under the care of an abolitionist governess and she grew to internalize those ideals for herself. And when she returned to Richmond, she was appalled by the institution of slavery and she, as soon as her father died, you know, the family owned slaves, you, you sort of had to own slaves in the antebellum South to get anywhere in business or social or in society. And her father, although he was a, a native Northerner, he had abided by that, I guess, social mandate. And Elizabeth, though, as soon as he died, she began um, spending her inheritance, buying slaves for the express purpose of freeing them. She freed all of her own family slaves and she dedicated herself to the idea of, of ending uh, slavery. And, you know, before the war broke out, this was sort of, you know, you know, people just thought she was an odd bird. You know, she was this strange woman, this this spinster who lived alone with her mother on this in this big mansion on Churchill, which was Richmond's wealthiest neighborhood. And they just thought she was sort of odd, you know, maybe this benign oddity. She wasn't doing any harm, but, she, you know, you, you didn't really want to mix with her. But after the war broke out, you know, these were very dangerous ideals for Elizabeth to have. It was very dangerous for her to be known as a staunch abolitionist. And, uh, you know, people began actively threatening her. Um, she received death threats on a constant basis. She was followed daily by Confederate detectives. Um, but nevertheless, she decided to uh, go ahead and try to build a union spy ring in Richmond. And she began recruiting people from all walks of life for this, um, including her own brother, which had never been written about before. Nobody knew John Van Loo's role in this whole espionage ring, and it was quite significant. Um, and also, I think her greatest coup as a spymaster was placing a former family slave in the home of, of Jefferson Davis in Jefferson Davis's White House. And uh, there was a great story. I, I was fortunate enough to speak with one of um, John Van Loo's descendants. Uh, John Van Loo had two daughters, and I spoke with the great-grandson of one of these daughters. Um, and he told me some really fascinating information that had never been published before about Elizabeth's spy operation. And he told the story about how you know, this was passed down through the family um, of how she came to uh, place Mary Bowser in, in the Confederate White House. And the story goes, this was late 1861. The Confederacy was still holding its own. You know, everybody in Richmond was pretty happy. And uh, Verena Davis, Jefferson Davis's wife, put out a call that she needed this. She needed staff. She was looking for servants um, and people to help her in, in her home. So Elizabeth paid her a social call. Um, and said, well, I have a girl for you. Um, she's not very bright. She stumbles in the kitchen, but she's loyal and she'll serve your family well. And she sends over Mary Jane Bowser. 
Uh, now, little does anybody know that Mary Jane Bowser is not only educated, but highly literate and gifted with a photographic memory. Wow. <laughs> While she's, you know, dusting Je Jefferson Davis's desk, she's taking peeks at his confidential papers, and, you know, cleaning up the children's toys, and she's eavesdropping on conversations he's having with his generals and advisors, and reporting all of this back to Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, Mary Bowser was a, a, an integral part of her spy ring, and you know, I always wondered, you know, should I have called it five women undercover in the Civil War? And the problem was that the the primary source material, even secondary source material on Mary Jane Bowser is so few and far between. I had to scrape and scrounge and, you know, pinch for every bit of information I got on her. And um, there just wasn't enough there to write scenes exactly from her point of view. So the rumor has it that, that Mary Jane Bowser actually kept a diary of her time as a spy in the Confederate White House, but that one of her de descendants, you know, not realizing what it was, threw it out in the 1940s or 1950s. Yeah, that's such a shame. What an amazing document that would have been to have. Now, I have to say, part of what really struck me in reading this book was how these women were able to use their gender to benefit their cause. Time after time, men from privates all the way on up to U.S. senators were so easily swayed by a few words. And, and these women were able to use the fact that men didn't take them seriously to full advantage. Oh, absolutely. And I thought that was uh, the sort of way that they went about that. And, they, and the fact that they realized it, um, it was, the whole enterprise was quite brilliant. Um, and this was really started to become apparent when Rose Greenhow was arrested and captured and imprisoned. And they started realizing, you know, the extent of the damage that she could do and the extent of damage that others like her could do. And there was this really great question one of Lincoln's advisors asked. And you could just, you know, hear it. You know, I read this in a book somewhere, but you could just hear the, or maybe it was a newspaper article. You could hear this sort of frustration in his voice. And, and he said, what are we going to do with these fashionable female spies? <laughs> and it was just sort of the first time, you know, they, they were realizing that, um, uh, you know, women were usually victims of war. They weren't perpetrators of war. It, you know, their loyalty was assumed. It was a quality of femininity itself. And now they were realizing, you know, for the very first time, you know, women weren't only capable of treasonous activity. They were capable of, of um, e executing it more deftly than men. And uh, they they really had to grapple with that question. What were they going to do with these fashionable female spies? And they used their femininity in some really creative, ingenious ways. They used their gender as both a physical and psychological disguise. You know, physically, they would hide dispatches and contraband up in their bonnets, you know, under their hoop skirts, tied to their crinoline, uh, you know, in their boots, anywhere they could fit it. And psychologically, um, you know, they would use it um, if they were ever questioned, um, if they were accused of treason or questioned in any way, their standard answer would be, how dare you? How dare you accuse me of such activity? I am a defenseless woman. And of course, they were anything but defenseless, but it was a, a line of answering that immediately shut the accuser down. He, he um, ended up apologizing and of saying, of course, of course, you wouldn't be capable of such a thing. Um, and, and so, you know, they, they continued that, uh, and, and were quite, quite brilliant at using that. And, um, and I think it was a long time before the men, you know, really realized, uh, the extent that the, the threat that these women posed. And roles really end up changing for women in the aftermath of the Civil War. And it seems to be a real turning point. Could you 
comment on that? Sure. You know, it was really fascinating. Uh, Elizabeth Van Lu in particular would, you know, have these little feminist acts of um, disobedience, I guess you could say, you know, every time she sent in her check to pay her property taxes, she would include a little note um, saying that, well, she shouldn't really be taxed because she's not uh, doesn't have the right to vote. And she's therefore not being treated like a full citizen. She should be exempt from paying taxes. Um, and I, I thought that was, you know, quite brilliant and, and gutsy of her to do. And, you know, it's true in general. Um, if you think about it, the Civil War was the first time for many of these women, um, North and South, uh, the men were gone, uh, the husbands, brothers, uncles, anybody who normally would act as a chaperone, you know, they had to go out with a male chaperone, was gone. Um, they had to take charge of family businesses. They had to take charge of plantations in the South. Um, basically had to find a way to keep life going and to keep their um, their routine intact as much as they could while while the men were gone. And this was a sort of newfound freedom. And, and I think a lot of them started quite liking this newfound freedom. There were a lot of tales of um, how physical intimacy changed, um, you know, the way that women would just visit camps and, and sort of have romantic liaisons with men they just met, you know, very, very daring situations um, at the time. And after the war, you know, I think there, the, the number is about 60,000 widows were left in the South and, and God knows how many more um, came home with physical disabilities or mental disabilities or amputations. And the women had to keep earning, you know, being the breadwinners and, and keep things running there. And I, I really think um, that the aftermath of the Civil War for women set the stage for the fight for suffrage and, and other women's rights um, as we moved you know, later on into the 19th and early 20th centuries. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy can be purchased online through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and is also available at local bookstores near you. So before we go today, I've got one more thing to share with you. A few years ago, I wrote a song about the Civil War, and my sister Jen, who has a lovely voice, agreed to sing it. And it seemed an appropriate time to play it for you uh, on this episode, so here it goes. And if you like it, you can, you can download the song off of iTunes. It's called My Rebel Soldier. Again, I hope you like it. <laughs> Mother's heart from the stories I've heard was as sweet as a Georgia night. She lived a long time ago as a great war raged on and her brothers were called to fight. Now my mother and I through the attic we roamed cause we wanted to know her better and we stumbled across the lost love of her life. In a series of faded letters My rebel soldier, these tears do not lie I know that I die without you My rebel soldier, come home to me now My soul is as warm with yours Well, she was Tennessee born on an autumn chill morn in the year 1845 Her dear old papa was proud But the family was poor And they struggled to stay alive 
when she turned seventeen in a pasture of green, her young heart beat as light as a feather. He was a farmer by trade, under moonlight they laid, and they knew they belonged together. My rebel soldier, these tears do not lie. I know that I die without you. Plans wouldn't last as her state pushed its sons to battle. Her young men took up arms, joining friends, leaving farms, and he followed Jeb Stuart's saddle. Through his letters she cried as she learned of his ride past the cannon that bloodied the header, and she prayed for the day. That she'd see that brown bay bring him home to her arms forever. My rebel soldier, these tears do not lie. I know that I die without you. My rebel soldier, come home to me now. My soul is as worn with yours. As we sat reading more on the attic's worn floor. We arrived at the final pages, and the words flowed like tears of our hopes and our fears, and the bonds that transcend the ages. At Brandy Station, he died, table wound to his side. In his clutch hand, they found a letter. On his faint lips, his breath formed the words before death. God, I loved her the day I met her. My rebel soldier, these tears do not lie. I know that I die without you. My rebel soldier, come home to me now. My soul is as one with yours. My rebel soldier, these tears do not lie. I know. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.